Who am I? Is the is our title today? Mark eight twenty seven to thirty eight is our text this morning. Um, we're now in the second Sunday in the season of Lent, where we highlight Jesus' uh, suffering and what that says about us and our need for a Savior as we prepare for Holy Week, as we prepare for Easter. Um, Two weeks ago, we heard from the text following this one on Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, Last week, we went back to the beginning of Mark and heard about Jesus' baptism. Uh, We heard about his temptation and we heard about the beginning of his ministry. Before we get to to today's text, it's helpful to know something of what came just before this. Our text today gets to Jesus' identity, who he is, what that means for us, what his um, purpose and work is based on who he is. We will find that this also tells us about our identity, uh, who we are or who we desire to be, and what that means for our lives. So first, um, over the first chapters of uh, this writing, of his writing about, that Mark is writing about uh, Jesus interaction with people in his ministry, Mark tells us different things that he did. He tells us about miracles, teaching with authority, healing, um, feeding thousands of people from just a few small pieces of food. Um, These things that Jesus was doing told people clearly that there was something special about him, about this man. And the question that was in their minds is, and that we might reflect on is, what was it that was being shown to them about who he is? What was it that was special about him? Just before today's text, Jesus and his followers, his disciples, were uh, towards the north side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, at the town of Bethsaida, uh, where some of the disciples were from. A blind man was brought to Jesus, and people asked uh, Jesus to heal this blind man. Jesus took him outside of the village, he spit on the man's eyes, and then he put his hands on him. And Jesus asked him if he saw anything. Could he see anything? The man said that he did. He saw people, they looked like trees walking around. That's a little bit strange, isn't it? It's the only time that we have a record of Jesus um, partially healing somebody. Uh, But then Jesus doesn't leave him there. I mean, that would be, you know, that wouldn't be very nice of him to do just that. So he put his hands on the man's eyes again, and when he opened them again, he could see clearly. So he was fully healed. Now, why Jesus did this in exactly this way, I don't know that we can say for sure, but it does seem pretty clear that Mark tells us about that right before he gets into this conversation that Jesus has uh, for a particular reason. And it's possible that even Jesus' reason for doing that was the same reason. You see, this man saw, as, as Jesus first began to heal him, he saw partially, but he needed his vision to be fully clear. In the same way, the disciples in particular, a lot of other people too, but in particular the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, their vision was beginning to get clear. They were beginning to see who Jesus was, but it was not all the way there quite yet. 
And that's what we find out in our text today. So as we read, we listen for what they already understood about Jesus and what they still needed to learn about him. And as we think about them, we may also reflect about us. What do we understand already about God and what do we still need to learn or maybe we need to be reminded of? We have, of course, what they learned already written down for us. And, you know, of course, they were looking ahead, not sure of what was going to happen with Jesus' life. We know what happened. We know that story. But I think we can always learn a little bit more or maybe learn it a little bit better. In particular, we might ask, what do we learn about Jesus and our identities and purpose? So our text is from Mark 8, verses 27 to 38. I'll invite you to stand as I read that this morning, Mark 8, 27 to 38, reading in Jesus' name. Now Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word to us and thank you even though there's some difficult things in here that Jesus says and... Uh, Hard to understand, maybe, how, how we can live by these things and, and why he would say this. But we know that this is your word to us, and we ask that you would guide us as we consider what you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. If there are any kids that would like to come to the front, I'd like you to invite you up right now. Come on up. All right. <laughs> All right, thanks for coming up. Hey, I want to ask you guys something. Um, Jesus said something. He called somebody a name. Uh, he called Peter something. Did you, did you hear what he said to Peter? Did you hear what he said as I read that? What did he say? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, huh? Do you think, did that sound very nice? Of Jesus to say, who's Satan? Who is that? Do you guys know? Who is Satan? What do we know about Satan? You guys know some things. I know you do. What? He's the angel who's like the best angel, and then he wanted to be better than God, so he turned. Yeah. 
Yeah, he, he was a beautiful angel, but he wanted to be better than God, right? And so he, he, kinda, he, he turned away from God, he rege- and he was cast out of heaven. And now he's kind of the main bad guy, right? He's, he's still, he's, he's uh, in the spirit world, we don't see him, but he's the main bad guy. He's working against God. He tries to take, keep people away from God. Well, as Peter was talking to Jesus, Jesus said to, towards Peter, get behind me, Satan. Do you know why he said that? What do you think? If If Jesus didn't die, well, yeah, you're you're on the right track here. Here's what I'm getting at. And we'll find this out as we think about this, what we want to be listening about. Peter was saying something that, that he didn't really understand, right? What Jesus needed to do. And Jesus, it was just like a temptation from Satan, what, what Peter was saying. So we're going to hear, why did Jesus say that? And, um, and uh, what did Jesus really need to do, right? It was pretty, pretty uh, do you think Peter was pretty surprised that Jesus would say that to him? Do you think so? Was Peter surprised? I think he would be. Do you think maybe he listened carefully to what Jesus said after that? Yeah, he probably did, right? What else he said? Well, we're thinking about, what did, what did Jesus say? We have here Jesus carrying his cross. He would have to suffer, right? Jesus needed to carry his cross, right? And we'll find out a little bit what that means, too, and what it means for us, too. So, all right, thanks for coming up. Here, oh, hold on, hold on. Okay, gently, you can hand those out. Thanks for coming up, guys. <laughs> well, we've started a, a race to come up and grab the pictures, I guess. But anyway, yeah, we'll get we'll get to uh, what Jesus says here in a little bit. Um, that's that's kind of a tough statement, but but anyway, we're approaching a time in Jesus' life here where there's a lot of opposition to his teaching by the religious authorities. A lot of other people are hearing about him and they're excited about what he might do for them, but the religious leaders more and more, want him dead. We find Jesus today preparing to teach his closest followers, his disciples, a little bit more about what he's doing. And so they move uh, farther away from Jerusalem, the center of of worship of God and, and where the religious leaders would be. They move farther away from that. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. This is, this is way up north from the Sea of Galilee, probably a couple days away from where Jesus did a lot of his work. And that itself would be a couple days away from Jerusalem, uh, where all, most of the religious leaders would be. And so here they are, away from the religious center, and Jesus is now at a turning point in his teaching, his teaching especially of his closest followers, um, and, and even the rest of the crowds around him as well. He's, he's, he's turning now to teach them what he's really about. Uh, he wants to draw out now their understanding of who he is, and he does that uh, as he's with the 12 disciples. He does that by way of a question. to to begin with. On the way, as they're walking, as they're heading towards these other villages, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And he begins to set the stage for what he's going to teach them by asking them uh, what what they believe about him, and, and he begins that by asking what other people believe about him. What is the general consensus about who he is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. Now, we won't go into detail about what these answers 
may signify or why these, uh, these um, uh, important people of the past, why, what that would mean for people to think that he may be one of them. We simply note that these are individuals who were well regarded by the people, at least as they knew their stories. Um, you know, John the Baptist was recently killed by King Herod. Elijah was, of course, from long ago. Um, and one of the prophets was from long ago, but they heard the stories, and these were people that served God. And so they know these stories, stories of miracles, stories of teaching, stories of healing, and maybe one of these is alive again in the form of Jesus. And, and maybe that's who this is, someone. And maybe we can expect some of the great things that these men of the past had done. Now, that's really nice of them to think that about Jesus, but their view of who Jesus is is quite short of the reality, quite limited compared to reality. These views, if correct, would simply mean that he is just one among many who could come give them some relief, maybe even some, something to hope for in the future. But there's more to who Jesus is. And so he asks his 12 disciples what conclusion they have come to after having been with him for some time, probably a couple years now at this point. But what about you? He asked them. Here are some of these other ideas, now implying that, of course, those are wrong. <laughs> he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And as we think about their answer to this question, uh, well, in particular, Peter's answer to this question, reflecting the others, we want to reflect on what our thoughts are about who Jesus is. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, as Mark records the story, this is all we get of, of Peter's answer. Um, uh, there's more, as, as Matthew, the others record it, they tell even a little bit more. But this is all that's necessary, as, as Mark is telling us, this for, for, his, for what he's trying to get across, um, Peter just says, you are the Messiah. The Messiah in Jewish teaching was a man who would be God's representative, and even, if they understood it correctly, would be God himself coming to save his people. That's who the Messiah is. In their minds, often this meant save his people from outside oppression. So, in thinking of Jesus as the Messiah, if he's really the Messiah, he's going to make some important things happen, and he's going to save us. If they were reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament relatively well, they would have probably understood a need for the Messiah to lead them in a good understanding of who God is and in worshiping God. So they would know that the Messiah would need to, to lead them in this, in understanding who God is. If they were reading the stories of the Old Testament, they would have seen that the reason they had problems as a nation is because they turned away from God constantly. So the Messiah would need to lead them back to Him, and through that, to give them freedom. Peter correctly identifies who Jesus is. I think we can be pretty confident that the other disciples as well, the others also agreed with Peter in, the, in this assessment. Jesus also agrees with him, but has this in response. He agrees, that's true, but he says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. We've seen a couple of times over the last few weeks where Jesus has said something about this, and we see the reason why. 
here. The reason why becomes clear. The reason is because the things that he was doing were giving an indication of who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. The miracles, the healings, the teaching were all an indication of this. But in many ways, they didn't really understand what that meant. They knew it was saying he was the Messiah, but what does that mean? Or maybe we could say it this way. What they understood it to mean was true, but not when they were thinking. So the the total freedom and deliverance of oppression is something that is real, but it's at the end of time, at the end of history, and not quite right away, which is what they were expecting. We look ahead to a time in the future where God will bring justice, where he will renew this world or bring a new world, and where, where things will be perfect. So we look ahead to that. The people in Jesus' time looked forward to that as well. And they thought that the Messiah would do that as soon as he came, that that would be immediate. They didn't even understand, even though Peter and the others understood who Jesus is and was, they still didn't understand what needed to happen to him. That the, the great things that they were expecting were coming, but not right at that time. And so, he then began to teach them. Because, he began to teach them because they needed to understand something more about what he was going to do. They didn't quite understand it. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Let's, so let's just start right there. The Son of Man was going to suffer many things. The Son of Man, of course, was a reference, another, another title, another term that's used from the Old Testament that refers to him. So as he says, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things. These things were written about in the Old Testament, but not always clearly understood. It wasn't always clearly understood that there would be suffering on the part of the Messiah. In addition to to suffering many things, we also hear this, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. There's a sense in this word rejected that would be like analyzing and considering and evaluating and then rejecting. So you might consider something if you have a job that has to do with, uh, you know, maybe evaluating a potential employee, maybe evaluating some material that might qualify for some work. And uh, if you have that job, you might evaluate it and say, yes, that's acceptable or no, doesn't fit the criteria, right? So there's that sense. So the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law would examine what they saw in Jesus. They would hear his claims who he identifies himself as, and they would say, no, no, he's not the one. They would analyze and they would reject. He is rejected. Peter and the others have identified Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus says, you're right, I'm the Messiah. But when I get presented to these religious leaders later on, they won't accept the truth. And since nobody who was not the Messiah should claim to be the Messiah, that's just wrong, right? It's, it's claiming to be God. Since nobody who was not the Messiah should, be, should claim to be the Messiah, and since the religious leaders would say, no, you're not the Messiah, this would have an inevitable ending. He must be killed. This is what was going to happen. This was necessary. Now, 
This is all sounding terrible. But Jesus did have something good to say. He did have something good in here. He said, and after three days, rise again. So that's good. (laughs) That's good news, right? So at least he does tell them that he's coming back to life. But think about this. When it comes to the disciples hearing it, I think we might have a hard time picturing what they were going through when they heard this. Yes, he talked about rising again, uh, but think about what he said was going to happen first. And he wasn't even as detailed as he would later be. I don't don't know that they could totally focus on this statement about rising again when the other things are kind of clouding their mind with suffering, dying. They might not have even heard the words the first time that he would rise again. You know, uh, we've heard about some young men in Chad who have come to faith, who have come to trust in what Jesus has done. But in doing that, they needed to face the reality that they would have eternal life, yes, but before that, they would suffer rejection from their families. And in fact, two, uh, two, two young men that are in the village of Doe that, that Dave and Sonia Narvison have talked to a lot, uh, they have left their families. They have def- left them because being with their families will at the very least mean alienation from the community, um, but could likely mean physical suffering. Maybe not death, but physical suffering. Most of us have probably not had to face that kind of choice in our lives. It's no wonder that the disciples couldn't focus on this idea of Jesus coming back to life in three days when the other parts of what Jesus said were so terrible and so unexpected. He spoke plainly about this, Jesus did. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This was so foreign to their idea of what the Messiah would do. So foreign to that, that Peter, you know, imagine this. Jesus is the teacher, but Peter says, hey, wait a second. got to set you straight on this little detail here, Jesus. This is not going to happen. Jesus began to teach them, and as he began, Peter began to rebuke him. But Jesus didn't let him get very far. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Not only that, he called them names. Well, he called him one name. Get behind me, Satan, he said. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? I mean, we often might want to tone that down a little bit, uh, but I think it was harsh as Jesus said that to him. Um, last week, we heard about Jesus being tempted. And although we didn't get details from Mark, um, we get them from Matthew, some of the details there. And in Matthew, we hear that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, get out of here. And from Luke as well, they tell us some of the words. And Satan left him for a more opportune time. Now, there were several, maybe more opportune times for Satan to tempt Jesus away from the purpose that he had on earth. And this was maybe one of them, that it was, we didn't hear Satan's words, we heard Peter's words, but they were a temptation to Jesus. Why was Jesus so harsh to Peter? Maybe because realizing how terrible things would be, it was too easy to be tempted to not go through with it. We know based on Jesus' prayer, the evening before he was arrested, that he would have rather not had to go through it if there was any other way. And so... He's harsh to Peter. I can imagine that this this stung. Can you imagine Peter's reaction as Jesus says this? 
I mean, we can just read over it in the story. But think about, as Peter is there experiencing this, we don't want to imagine kind, gentle Jesus talking this way to Peter, and yet he did. But he explains himself. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Keep this in mind as we continue on, and think about what he says to us as well through this. Jesus wasn't just being mean as he spoke this way to Peter. He was teaching, and he was abrupt with his teaching, and Peter needed to understand that what he was getting at was, yes, Peter understood who Jesus was, but not what he would need to do. And I think, you know, Peter maybe needed to be startled into understanding that. And his thinking about who God is and what God would do in certain circumstances was only based on how people would think, not on how God thinks. Think about our reading from Romans this morning. Very rarely will somebody give up their life for someone else, knowingly exchange their life for someone else's life, die so that somebody else might live. Very rarely will somebody do that, knowingly, even for a righteous person. Somebody might not do that, probably wouldn't do that. But maybe, maybe for someone who is good and righteous, somebody might do that, exchange their life. But what about rotten scoundrels? Who would choose to give up their life for a murderer or a liar or an adulterer or an oppressor or, you know, just your daily average sinner? You know, who would do that? Who would give up their life for a scoundrel? Only God would do that. Only those that have God working inside of them would do that. These are God's concerns. And this is what Jesus would need to do to give up his life. And this has more impact on us than just what Jesus would do. And what he teaches next isn't just for the 12 disciples. He called the crowd to him along with the disciples. So, so he's teaching his disciples here, and he said, you know, don't identify who I am, because they're going to misunderstand. And he teaches them a little bit about what he's going to do. And then he calls others around. You know, he gets others gathered around him as well. And, uh, and he wanted them to know too. These people who were excited to follow him, because they saw the miracles, they saw the good things happening, he wanted them to know what it would truly mean to follow him. And so he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Three things here. First, deny themselves. We deny ourselves by turning our back on our natural, selfish desire, uh, desires and urges. Not necessarily sinful ones, just thinking about ourselves. Even good things, but if they're thinking about for our own safety and security and gain and, and, and enjoyment turning our back on ourselves and putting someone else in a place of priority. We must deny ourselves and take up our cross. This, this can easily give the idea of some kind of suffering, of course, taking up a cross, but it's not just generic suffering. This is suffering in connection with Jesus and who he is. This is a suffering in connection with acknowledging our rebellious nature and and rejecting that rebellious nature. Following Jesus, we might imagine 
Jesus, with his cross that he had to carry, at least the cross beam, on the way out to Calvary, he has his cross and he's carrying it. And those who see, hear, and trust him, picking up their crosses as well. That's us too, right? And we might imagine a procession of Jesus and his followers all with our crosses. We're following him in taking on this suffering, suffering before the world. This is not fighting the world for our rights. This is the understanding that if we are following Jesus and living a life the way he lived his, we will be rejected by people. We will be rejected by a culture that does not acknowledge him. It's not easy to want to do this. But Jesus demonstrates why it is so important that we get this straight. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If you try and and if I try to protect our lives, to have things that we want around us, that we look around and and we want them to have them, the comfort that we want, the ease that we may want, if we try and maintain those things, we will lose our lives as those become more important than the life that God gives. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. If we put aside the priorities that we hear people around us telling us are important for the sake of Jesus and what he has done, he saves our lives. We don't try to avoid suffering in this life, suffering that comes from being associated with Christ. We acknowledge that this suffering produces something in us. And here Jesus illustrates why this is so important. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What if you could, I was thinking about some sports uh, things this week, you know, what if you could sign on to the football team and then go out and win the Super Bowl, and then, and then you could go, you know, uh, later that year and win the World Series, because you're on the baseball team too, and then you could be on the soccer team and win the World Cup, and, you know, maybe you could have the riches of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and, uh, and Bill Gates. I was thinking, he's still rich, right? I mean, I hear about these new guys, but I think Bill Gates is still rich. You know, what if you had all of that wealth and all of, those, all of that fame, all of that success? Now, this is an impossibility, of course. Nobody can have all of that. Nobody can have everything. But even if you could have the maximum, even if you could have everything, it still would not be worth your soul. Now, if that's true, certainly then, there is nothing less than the whole world that could be worth your soul. There is no success in life. There is no comfort in life. There is no set of relationships in this life. There are no experiences in life, none of them that are worth for even a moment losing our soul. If we lose that, we've got nothing else. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The answer is obvious, nothing. And Jesus' uh, concluding comments about being ashamed of him is not so much about being shy or hesitant to share the gospel as it is, as if not speaking will some, somehow condemn us, you know. This is about those who don't want any part of who he is and what he does. Those will not be acknowledged by him when he returns. It's important to understand who Jesus is as the Messiah, and it's important to understand that this means suffering. It also means that as we follow him, our identity, who we are, is tied to his identity so that we also deny ourselves and take up our cross 
and follow him. And I would say, too, what's true for the individual is also true for the group. So could we say the same for not just ourselves individually, but for our families or for our church? Just as trying to save our lives by denying suffering for Christ will lead to our losing our lives, I would say trying to save our church by denying suffering for Christ and only hanging on to what we want will lead, maybe, to losing our church. If we try to hang on to what's important to us, we lose what's important to Christ, and that's reaching out to those who need him. Let me, let me uh, give an example of what I mean here. I haven't really seen this here at Community of Joy, but I have seen it in places where good things can get in the way of better things. So, like, for example, people who, who like a Bible study that they're a part of, and, and their effort is spent in keeping that Bible study the way that they like it with the people that they like in their Bible study, instead of, willing to be, uh, instead of being willing to say, you know what, is it possible God might be calling me to give up what I'm really comfortable with here in order to open up to others? There are places where that happens, where people are so happy with each other that they're closed off to those who need Christ. Jesus asked the question of his disciples, who am I? He invites us to ask the follow-up question for ourselves. Who am I? Who are we? Jesus, as the Messiah, needed to suffer and die. Those of us who connect ourselves to him can expect to die to ourselves, to die to our own wants. We are invited to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. We are invited to follow him in denying ourselves and what serves our own wants, and exchange that for something so much better. We get to share in eternity with him, and we get to see others do the same. He's inviting us to follow. Let's join him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Even though it's a difficult word of suffering, giving up our own wants and our needs, and turning our attention to what you would have for us and towards the needs of others. And we ask that you would help us to confess well that you are the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, and to follow, to take up our cross, to follow you, to deny ourselves, and to serve you and to serve others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.